Hey guys, before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the Goal Link membership because if you love the podcast, then you are going to absolutely adore the membership because it's a weekly conversation that you get to be a part of. Not just listen, but get to be a part of while we talk about and learn together because that just sounds amazing to me. And this is brand spanking new. So because it's new, we're giving founding members, you listening right now, a discount while we build this up. So who is the membership for and why should you sign up? It's for those who want a personalized attention to their questions and challenges. It's for the growth junkies who love a meaningful conversation and have the desire to connect deeper with others and get exclusive content that you're not going to hear or on social media. It's for the people who love commenting or messaging back and want to go deeper, but social media isn't enough. And it's great, but it limits our growth and intimacy. So if this sounds like you, click the link in the description to get the founding members deal and let's go peeps. All right, enjoy this episode. What's up, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another week of The GoLink Show. My name is Ben, the host and founder of GoLink. GoLink is a supportive community of growth junkies and life learners embracing weekly challenges. Each week, we find a new way to level up and learn something new. So it could be a cold shower, waking up at 5 a.m., a kind act, taking yourself on a date, journaling, meditating, various fitness activities, and much more. These challenges are inspired by mission-driven brands that align with our values. So if you're crazy like me and you love to level up and you're always looking for ways to evolve and grow and step into your fullest potential, then GoLink is just for you. Join us every week on social media to participate in these weekly challenges. Embrace the challenge with me at GoLink Group. The GoLink Show, this podcast, recounts experiences from life enthusiasts with a unique perspective. So they could be a mother, a teacher, business owner, coach, entrepreneur, somebody with many years of experience, or someone just stepping into their arena. Wherever they are in life's journey, we all have a story to tell. So we delve into the struggles that we come across during our journey. How do we find the will to make it through? What role does failure play in our lives? What tools and lessons have we learned from those difficult experiences? Let's talk about the process and not just the result. We discuss this and much more in the show. Thanks for tuning in. What's up, gang? Welcome, my dude, my man, Dr. Aaron Simmons, to the show. He's a professor of philosophy at Furman University. He's written nine books, and in addition to just his intellectual prowess, a loving father, husband, and of course, he loves to go deep into conversation, and that's why you're going to love it, is because life is about nuance. There's no black and white answers, and he gives us just that, and you'll hear it from the jump, from the first question that we go deep, so you're going to love it. And we start the conversation off by recalling how many churches that he's been kicked out of or politely asked to leave. And we take a different angle that you may or may not heard about God and politics, something that we maybe have talked about once on here. And the importance of a disagreement and willing to be proved wrong. This is critical. Surround yourself with critics. Put question marks where others put periods. And his theory, which I love, the failure of success and he's willing to help you. He gives his email at the end of the show if you have any questions or you want to delve even deeper into him, book him for a speaking gig, or just ask a simple question. All right, y'all, enjoy this episode with my man Aaron. Let's go. All right, everyone, welcome to 
The Goaling Show. I got my man, Dr. Aaron Simmons. How are we doing today? Doing well. Glad to be with you. PhD, um, professor at Furman University. This is right. <laughs> this yeah, is right. <laughs> I've been here for uh, nine years now, and before yeah. I came to Furman, I taught at Hendricks College out in Arkansas, mm-hmm. uh, Swanee, University of the South in Tennessee for a while, then started my yeah. career at Vanderbilt. Yeah, that's so cool. And like props to, we got to give props to Ted because that's how we met. So I listened, um, I think the day it came out, I listened to your conversation that you had on his podcast. Yeah, the No Rain, No Rainbows. Yep. And I, shouts out. Yeah. And that was my favorite podcast that he's done. Oh, I appreciate that. So, and then when you spoke at his Modern Man event, and I was like, dude, like this guy. I know. I just like we could have like a great conversation. So thanks for doing. I don't this. know. You may you may have heard everything I have been saying. <laughs> we'll so find out. I might be tapped. And then, but not everyone else has not heard it. So I think it'd be really fun to start this conversation off by you telling the listeners how you got kicked out or how many churches you've been kicked out of. I'm not exactly sure how many. <laughs> I, I think it. It's, it's a. I've never had an interview start with that question. Um, <clears throat> I think probably three, four. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe five. Uh, and I should say kicked out is sort of euphemistic. It, mm-hmm. It's not that I've ever had anyone tell me you are no longer welcome at this church. So let me, let me be clear. What has happened is I'm a philosopher of religion. My specialty is thinking really carefully and, and hopefully really well about mm-hmm. what it means to be, um, committed to the life of the mind and also somebody who's committed to the life of faith and that these are not incompatible, but maybe in fact they reinforce each other in compelling ways. So that not surprisingly leads to questions being very comfortable for me. And so when it comes to faith um, and identify as a Christian, one of the things that's really tricky, uh, it seems to me, is that the model of God that Christianity affirms is one that is maximally relational defined by a kind of incarnated conception of deity, right? God working with us, walking with us, mm-hmm. person with us, etc. It's not a abstract idea of some God out there, but it's actually of a person who is intimately related in personal ways. And yet, a God who is maximally transcendent, maximally other, mm-hmm. not confused with human suffering in, in some sort of... Um, dangerously anthropological way, right? So how are we able to navigate a God who is supposedly with and proximate and also a God who is maximally beyond? So <laughs> those, not surprisingly, are going to raise some questions for yeah. us. And, and, and my thought is it should probably cultivate um, a pretty healthy humility when it comes to our God talk and how we make sense of who God mm. is, right? Um. Well, let's just say I've been at some churches where the pastors thought my attempt to cultivate this healthy humility as a mode of uh, Christian living was, I think, perceived as a challenge to their theological Mm -hmm. or ecclesial authority, where I was a problem for them and dangerous to the community. These are actual phrases I have heard. Um, Disruptive to the unity of the community because... I, I thought that it was actually important to ask questions in the context of our religious existence mm. rather than to take, well, the pastor has said this, so therefore it is obvious, or the Bible says this, so somehow the interpretation is obvious. For me, there's precious little that uh, is obvious in Christian life. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it, I wouldn't say kicked out, I, I, though, though I often say it that way. Um, <laughs> 
invited to find other places <laughs> that are better suited to my family's needs, I think uh. is how one pastor put it. <laughs> um, and, and every time, it, I, I never got angry, but I was every single time disappointed uh, that, that Christian hospitality, which seems to me um, rooted at the very nature of the example that we find in the person of Christ, yeah. uh, got expressed as a kind of um, egoistic attempt to reinforce one's own stability and power. And the need to be in control of the narrative by which those who are in your community operate. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that that smacks of a kind of idolatry that we probably should be wary of. Mm. Um, I tend to think that if Jesus walked in most churches, we'd probably show him the door too, um, because oh yeah, going he, to that. He, well, think about it this way. Um, <laughs> Jesus didn't get along very often with religious authorities. Yeah. And religious authorities today get along very well, unfortunately, with the people in political power. And mm -hmm. it seems to me that those should always be at some degree of odds and distance. That if you are very comfortable with power, you are probably going to be uncomfortable with the narrative that Christ invites us to as a way of life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, that the uh, grace Christ offers is a costly grace. It's, it's, it, it demands us to walk to the cross, he says. It does not demand that we buy, you know, fancier cars and uh, drive, you know, Lamborghinis or put gold rims on our Range Rovers mm -hmm. or hang out with presidents and then demand that the world recognize the president as some sort of model of Christian living on earth. That, that to me, is using theological language to reinforce one's own status. In, mm. in the world. And I think C.S. Lewis probably um, summarizes the way we should approach things really well when he says, if you seek heaven first, then you'll probably get earth thrown in. Mm. But if you seek earth first, you'll recognize that earth was always already hell. And so that temptation to letting God be just the ultimate justification for your own status and position. Um, this is why the uh, American white evangelical church, I think, mm -hmm. has unfortunately in particular been very um, comfortable with legacies of white supremacy that go unacknowledged. Um, it becomes racialized in ways that are not seen as continued evil to be rooted out, mm. but is seen as just normalcy that defines the way we navigate the world and why has everybody got to be so frustrated. Um, I, I, I genuinely worry about ever becoming the white moderate to whom King uh, uh, you know, directed many of his uh, mm. most stringent critiques. Yeah, yeah thanks. Like, for everyone listening, that was just the first question, <laughs> right? And so you it, already it, know. It, it, it's his fault. He, <laughs> you, you started off asking me about uh, that's why getting, we love le it. You know, leaving church, right? <laughs> we can start the no, elsewhere. That's why we do it. I love it. Like we're already there. That's why you know this is art. It's already awesome. Mm. So how, so kind of related into that realm, right? Of, cause you're a Democrat, right? I, or I a liberal or I how, you? define myself as certainly, um, more progressive on social and economic issues, um, than many. And, um, that said, I'm, 
definitely somebody who thinks that political party um, shouldn't define reasonable stances in our political governance. Yeah. So I would be entirely thrilled if there were um, smart Republicans representing the cause of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, and caring about the environment and supporting um, programs for those who are the most oppressed in our society. I'm, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it seems to me that many <clears throat> more conservative views of small government um, have failed to account for mm-hmm. the role of equality in social life um, and instead have privileged liberty in ways that have diminished the possibility of genuine equality. Um, and this is a, a longstanding debate in political philosophy. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I am certainly on the more progressive side of the political spectrum because I think that government probably should be a bigger role in our social thriving. Hmm. Um, but I have no great interest in the government taking over um, you know, individual lives or trumping liberty or you know stepping on rights. Yeah. I see it instead as the government can do for the hurting um, more in an instant than almost all the charitable organizations are able to do. This is, this is just mm-hmm. logistically the case. If we moved the money we spend on militarism to social need, there's nothing else that can make that kind of impact like the government. Is it inefficient? Absolutely. Is it problematic? Absolutely. Is there always the temptation for it becoming its own power narrative? Absolutely. Um, But yeah, so that's my long and complicated answer. (laughs) Am I a Democrat? I am certainly registered as one. Uh Uh, (laughs) But I think right now we live in a society that is not just polarized, but it's antagonistically polarized, Mm -hmm. where to be a Democrat, to be progressive, is to think that conservatives and Republicans are irrational and immoral. Mm. And I fundamentally refuse to think that. Mm. I think there are lots of humans with whom I share this society who who make it hard not to see them as irrational and immoral. Um, But that should be a very lamentable and slow conclusion. It should not be where we start. Yeah. So, all right. I, like, I love your answer to answer that and going, whether it's in church, whether it's in politics, whether it's at home, why discuss the theory of like both being right or disagreement being healthy? Like just yeah. like, how can we disagree in harmony? I'm not sure if they're right, if that's the right phrasing, but talk about just disagreement. Yeah, being well, healthy. I just say the, the importance of, healthy disagreement and i think it's probably the right way to put it is we exist as relational beings and if we are beings who love truth more than being right that means that we are willing to seek out criticism seek out objections to the views we hold because we don't want our view to win the day just Mm -hmm. because it's our view we want instead to hold the view that is the right view and hopefully it is able to win the day Those are two very different approaches. And lots of philosophers through the history of philosophy um, have argued the importance of surrounding yourself with critics because if you're speaking in a room that is critical, there's only two things that can happen, really. Mm. One, they are right, and their criticisms help you change your view, all the better. Or your view, even if not right, still has the best arguments for it in light of their objections 
in which case now you've been able to reinforce your view and not hold it dogmatically. Mm. So I want to be surrounded by critics in order to be able to make sense of why I stand where I stand and then recognize there are always other places that I reasonably could stand, mm. that where I stand is not the only option. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned already, but he actually has this great line where he says, I'm quoting Martin Luther, mm -hmm. Martin Luther says, here I stand, I can do no other, right? Which makes it sound like there is only one option for me as long as I'm virtuous. Mm. Bonhoeffer says, no, we can always do otherwise. Mm. And that's really important. So whether we are talking about politics or theology or social life or where to go get dinner, <laughs> uh, the yeah. mundane to the sublime, mm -hmm. all of these should be grounded in the idea that we stand somewhere, but there are other reasonable places to stand. Mm -hmm. And inviting others to challenge us, to push us, to disagree with us, notice the first move is the invitation. It's hospitality. So if we are hospitable by receiving the other, even when they bring scorn and critique and even derision in some cases, as long as that is invested in a relationship grounded in a commitment to truth, we're good. Mm -hmm. We may not persuade each other, but we will deepen our relationship and respect that each of us love truth. Conversion mm. takes a long time. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, if you were to c convince me that Florida State University is not, in fact, the best, you know, team to, to support, I don't think you've got enough time to pull that <laughs> off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but am I fundamentally open to that? Well, yeah. Right? Th mm -hmm. there, there has to be, at some level, a willingness to be persuaded otherwise. And one of the weird things uh, is that we enter conversations often with the fundamental goal to convince the other person that we are right. But then if we say, but wait a minute, I'm expecting of them a virtue that I am not displaying. If Ooh. I enter the conversation, am I willing to be wrong? Ooh, let's repeat that again. So when you're going into a conversation with somebody, you want to be right but then we're also, we're expecting that same person to be open to our view, but we're not showing that same yeah, we're courtesy. Not, we're, I like we're, that. We're, I mean, the way I tell my students a lot is, what if we stopped trying to enter conversations to persuade the other person to our view, but instead we entered conversations with mm -hmm. other people to say, hey, I would love to hold your view if the argument is stronger than the one that I currently occupy. Mm -hmm. Persuade me. But it's not like, you know, standing there with your chest all puffed out yeah. and persuade me, you've got to you know, bring it. It's saying no, because again, mm. either your argument is stronger and you've got a better view and a better reason, or at some level, just even you've got experiences that are different than mine. Yeah. And you can enrich my appreciation exactly. of some topic, right? And that may not be that you persuade me to the view you hold. It might be that I still think there are objections that your account just doesn't you know, respond to, or my experiences are different, which causes me to say, look, I understand why you would hold that view, mm. but maybe now you can understand why I can't. So being able to relationally be invested in a truth seeking social life, like what would be better than that? That's democracy. That, that's, yeah. I mean, the, the way I define democracy and why I defend it so strongly is democracy is the political system defined by the idea that every single person's critical voice is equal to every other person's critical voice. Mm -hmm. The homeless person on the street 
has just as much legitimacy to say, wait a minute, we're not doing this right as the person sitting in the governor's mansion. Hmm. And I, I think that is maximally compelling. Now, it doesn't mean that one or the other okay. is probably the one to listen to it. We mm-hmm. have to listen to both to figure that out, right? But even to connect it to my own religious identity, um, one of the things I love about um, lots of the world's religious traditions is the way that they are defined by saying, hey, come, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a philosopher, Jacques Derrida, who says that the fundamental words that should guide our existence are bien, bien, oui, oui. Come, come, yes, yes. So the idea that yes saying and come saying, invitation saying, are how we navigate relationships, mm. that's so much more compelling than yeah. entering a conversation saying, oh, you're just fake news, right? I mean, there, there is no conversation that I could start saying, Immediately. Oh, oh, Ben, you're so fake news. That, that's not a space where now you're saying, oh, I'm being taken seriously and my views and my experiences are being legitimated, even if challenged. Hmm. So w- the way I put it sometimes is that the stakes of democracy are epistemic. And epistemology is just the idea that they they concern knowledge. They concern justification. They're interested in how we give reasons for where we stand. So if I'm going to stand in this spot and you're going to stand in the other spot, we have an obligation to try to understand where each other are because we're also going to have some policy that mm. dictates one of us may not be able to stand where we think we should be standing, right? If, if you're pro-choice and I'm pro-life or <laughs> I'm pro-life and you're pro-choice, we are advocating for public policy that will restrict the ability for one of us to stand where we think is the right place. We owe each other reasons that this is a moral and social obligation. I think it's also a theological obligation. Hmm. And yet we somehow think if we yell out enough, if we mock the other person well yeah. enough, if we have a good press agent, if we <laughs> have better attorneys, uh, if, if we get to create and sow dissension in ways that make the masses doubtful of the perspective with which I disagree, um, you know, when we say things like the press is the enemy of the people, any yeah. of these moves, what we're doing is negating the epistemic importance of democratic life. Hmm. And notice as soon as we do that, what we're saying is you can't trust your own eyes. You can't trust data. You can only trust me. What more power move is there than saying, just take my word, it's sufficient. Democracy says, no, that's Mm. not how this works. I don't care if you're president. Being president doesn't make you epistemically authorized to override my own reason. And that, I think, is where we're dangerously at in in society. We've got to be better as conservatives, as progressives, as centrists, as wherever we are, yeah. we've got to be better at saying, hey, if I think what I hold to be true is true, why, why would I fear or be angry at the fact that someone else disagrees with it? I, I can't simply say, well, they're entitled to their opinion. Mm-hmm. I should say, no, 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 they're entitled to my time and my energy to take seriously what they're saying, but I've got to expect of myself the same thing I'm expecting of them. Yeah. We, we have to be willing to change our minds. We've got to be willing to be transformed by the other, even if we don't change our minds, right? Finding ways to see the other person as reasonable and moral and a neighbor 
that doesn't mean that I see them as right. Mm. And somehow we don't allow that complexity to be very, very common in our society. That's cool. Has your mind ever been changed by a student? Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't say about deep things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not like I, I, uh, you know, the the things like, you know, my love of my wife or or my son (laughs) or the Seminoles, uh, (laughs) you know, the important things. Um, You know, those things, uh, not so much. They, they, They have morphed in different ways you know i might have a student who invites me to to think about love differently in light of some text that we've read um which then impacts maybe the way i relate to my wife in some sort of new way Mm. um but yeah in in sort of small technical ways you know i i teach things in philosophy of religion and i've had students for example from different religious traditions who have helped me better understand the working of certain terms, um, why the word God, for example, um, might not be the right phrase for understanding how divinity functions in different types of world religious traditions, mm-hmm. which I know conceptually, but yet when you're talking to a student in front of you who says, look, I'm religious, but I, I don't believe in God, now these words that we're using in sort of subtly assumed ways get thrown back at you in ways that cause you to pause and have to stutter and say, wow, we need to rethink this. Um, Sympathies, uh, opennesses to embodiment, different experiences, different types of trauma. Um, Again, not like change my mind in the sense of like, I, I was opposed to something and now I am for it, mm-hmm. but better understanding um, how to make sense of someone else's embodied experience. Yeah. Um, you know, w- watching a student who may not be able-bodied in the way that I am um, respond differently to certain exercises in class make me think, shoot, you know, w- what am I taking for granted yeah. about teaching that is nested in my own embodiment that maybe they're helping me rethink? Um, and, and then in some very practical ways, you know, I, I, uh, several years ago, I specialize, uh, in the work of this philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. He was a 19th century Danish, um, thinker, some of the father of existentialism mm-hmm. referred to sometimes. Okay. Um, so I, I'm the president of the Soren Kierkegaard society and have written several books on him. And so he's somebody I think a lot about and mm-hmm. has spent you know, decades thinking about, <laughs> but I had a yeah. student ask a question in class having first read Kierkegaard, they had just encountered him and they asked a question and the question like wrecked me, you know, it was like, really? wow, my, my interpretation, like, I've got to rethink this. Huh. And, um, I ended up writing an essay just trying to answer the question that that student asked me That's that I didn't cool. think I had a very good answer to. And I wrote an essay, it got published, um, I think it got published actually translated in Ukrainian or something. It was, it was a strange, <laughs> strange little experience. Yeah. And I sent the essay to the student That's awesome. and said, thanks, you know, um, I've, I've thanked students in essays before because they, their questions have motivated me to rethink an idea or, or a topic in ways that were productive. Um, That's so, yeah. cool. I love that. Has, like historically speaking, did, do you know like in any text or study, did Jesus Christ surround himself with critics? Well, I mean, Jesus surrounds himself with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with... I guess, because um, he is walking amongst yeah, I mean, and, everyone. And you say, well, who, who does he walk among? Uh, you say, well, all of us. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, those in his inner circle 
uh, are the ones often that the religious mm-hmm. authorities would say are anathema to, you know, um, social identity. One of my favorite stories actually is, it's cliche, but it's the Good Samaritan. Mm. And of course, it's a story told by Jesus, right? And so <laughs> it's interesting. Um, the the context in which it gets told is when um, someone asks Jesus, you know, well, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God um, with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the next question is a really smart philosophical question. Okay, well, who's my neighbor? Right, which is mm-hmm. an attempt to narrow the scope of obligation. <clears throat> so if I only have to care about you know these five people or <laughs> people within this city block yeah. or people who look like me or whatever, people who vote like me, right? Um, it, it, you know, then then I don't have to work as hard. Yeah. Well, Jesus is really slick. His, his response <laughs> isn't, "Oh, your neighbor is everybody." He doesn't say your neighbor, you know, are other Jews. He doesn't say your neighbor are other people from Greenville. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> and then, you know, he ends the story by saying, so, you know, th- this, this story is the best answer I can give you. So it's not I'm going to answer that question for you. Mm. It's I'm going to force you to engage your reason, your emotive capacity, your ethical awareness, and recognize what that story has said it too is an invitation and it's so cool because the samaritan in the context the samaritan is basically an outcast by all the social identity groups (laughs) um the way i try to think about this sometimes is like in these debates about you know transgender bathrooms and stuff i'm like wow you know what would it be for your embodiment to be sort of you know rejected by all of the recognized spaces seems like that's a Samaritan existence. And what does Christ invite us to not to, you know, reject the Samaritan and expect them to become like us, Mm. but in fact, hold the Samaritan up as the moral exemplar for how we should then live. So I tend to think that it's not just that Jesus surrounds himself with critics, it's which we do see. I mean, he's, he's in the temple when he's a kid, you know, debating finer points of theology, right? So mm. dude was doing philosophy early. <laughs> um, but it's more the very example that he offers us even embodiedly is a example that ruptures anything that we would think is socially obvious about power. I once gave a talk called God is trouble or God is nothing. And what I meant by that was God is trouble for our complacency or God is nothing but a reinforcement of who we already think we are. God is trouble for our assumptions about what matters in life or God is nothing other than the stories that we've been told by others. God is trouble for our racial privilege, or God is nothing but the white supremacists that, in fact, we claim Christianity isn't, right? The, the whole idea is, unless God troubles, unless God ruptures and wrecks and, and interrupts our complacency, then we are committed to an idolatrous reinforcement of ourselves, and we don't need God. So God is trouble, or God is nothing. Ooh. Man, dude, we're going to have to go back on that one. That was like, dude, I love that. So in your TED Talk, 
And I heard you say this, you know, a week ago that you like to put question marks where others put periods. Yeah. I think philosophers Philosoph- as such do this. Not, yeah. not professional philosophers. I don't, I, I think very few people should be professional philosophers. <laughs> this is a, it's kind of like saying, People say, you know, oh, should I be a philosopher? It's like, why would you want to join a leper colony? <laughs> like this, this, this may be a bad group to be part of. Uh-huh. Um, but philosophers, in the sense that, whether mechanics, business leaders, CEOs, uh, school teachers, fire mm-hmm. persons, politicians, whatever it is, we are as our job. Um, we, what if we say, I'm committed to excellence and truth and beauty and righteousness and virtue and justice here? So. That requires us. When I give business talks, I, I someone say it's like philosophers are the the best resources for innovative business practice. Mm. Why? Because we're the ones who say, hmm, everyone's doing this. What if we did it differently? Right? Mm. Well, maybe there's reasons that no one does it this way. Yeah. Maybe it's a really bad idea to put square tires on cars. <laughs> it might be a good reason that they don't yeah. do this. But what if? we started asking fundamental questions about yeah. the basic operations of the world in which we find ourselves. And so I think philosophy, you know, um, Aristotle said it very well. He said, philosophy begins in wonder. And we look around and say, hmm. <laughs> and I, I think it actually reminds me of an old rap song by a group called Special Ed. Hey. And, and the rap <laughs> song was to be called, you know, things that make you go, hmm, you know. And I was like, yeah, the things that make you go, hmm, like, the fact that there's something rather than nothing, the the fact that <clears throat> I feel morally compelled in certain ways, but is that a social product or is there actually something about morality that's bigger than that? Is the, I don't understand yesterday, one of my, my best friends in the world um, had been on dialysis for mm. several years, 11 hours a day, just got a kidney. And I mean, this, this saved his life and his family's got two young kids. Awesome. I mean, I'm rejoicing with him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> In order for him to get that kidney, yesterday someone in fact passed away, right? And the, the, hmm. <laughs> that is a big. So hmm. how do we? How do we? You know, because so someone's probably sad about that. Somebody person, is you know? is tragically yeah. sobbing, and yet somebody's praising God, right? That's so great. Saying, that God, is a big how? one. God, thank you. So I think that philosophers, it's not just that we walk around wishy washy. It's not like question marks are we never take stands on things. It's that. We recognize that, again, wherever we stand, we could stand elsewhere. And so we, we should do our best to be intentional. You know, the way I sometimes put it is we should live on purpose but breathe deep while living. And so even though we're asking questions a lot, sometimes you just need to go fishing or trampoline park yeah, <laughs> or yeah, yeah. read a good book or whatever we do that makes uh-huh. us feel, you know, vibrant and, and find joy. Um, but you know what? Like, life often is not as hard as we make it, but truth is almost always more complicated than nuanced than we think. Hmm. Do you think, do you believe in like black and white and um, any, well, as, as colors, maybe um, <laughs> on a checkerboard, but like truth, probably like truth. Uh, like... It depends sort of how we cash it out. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think there are mind-independent facts and states of affairs? And if you and I were not here, there mm-hmm. would still be objects in this room? Yes. Um, do I think there would be chairs in this room? I don't know. 
because a chair is only a chair insofar as someone recognizes the object as <laughs> you know facilitating sitting right yeah um so i i i tend to think that it is probably um wise to say whenever i think say, i rather than think about it black and white i tend to talk about it as obvious so whenever i think something's obvious I probably have missed something. Um, I like that. Now, there are maybe some exceptions, right? Uh, do I think it is obvious that white supremacy is a moral failure and evil? Yes. But I think it's obvious to those of us who are able to reflect on it in the context in which we find ourselves. Not obvious to everyone. It, it wasn't obvious to people in the context of slavery. Now, do yeah. I think that they're morally blameworthy? Yeah, because I think they were morally wrong. But I think we, we I, I sometimes ask my students, and it's a hard question, when you watch The Triumph of the Will, this propaganda video um, film made by Leni Reifenstahl during the, the Nazi uh, time in, in World War II, you watch it, and you'll see parents, you know, Hitler riding down the street, and parents lifting the hands of their kids to salute him. Hmm. And I think, wow, <laughs> you know, how how evil like this man rep the embodiment of evil in the world and everything that i want to raise my kid to oppose and stand against and yet what if i had been one of those kids whose hand was being raised i hope that i would have had the moral intuition and reasonable ability to recognize something's wrong about this as i grew up but it's also, you know, I, I think we should just be hesitant to be too self-righteous, not, not in casting blame, right? Like saying, this is not okay. This cannot stand. Hmm. That's required of just moral people who will not be silenced by injustice. And thankfully, we've got a long history of the Martin Luther Kings and the <coughs> uh, Rosa Parks and others who have said I, I'm not going to go quietly into this good night. Yeah. Thankfully, we inherit that history too, not the history of the great leader, you know, Hitler, right? But h- how is it that the great Fuhrer, if, if that had become our history, if we had lost that war, if, if things had gone otherwise, I think it's important for us to recognize, look, things could have gone otherwise. Mm-hmm. We, we might see things obviously in different ways that doesn't make them right that's where again i do believe in moral facts Mm. right doesn't make them right but it should make us maybe a little bit more humble and hospitable in how we relate to the people again with whom we disagree so i will never ever think that it's okay to equivocate the way trump did about there's good people on both sides no if you're marching against Jews and against people of color, you're wrong. You don't get to be a good person willfully occupying that view. You've decided not to position yourself in relation to the good. But with those people, do you think... But I think, well, how, how do we respond to those people? Yeah. During the protest, during the rally, we link arms and stand against them. But the thing is, next the next day, we've also got to figure out some way... Well, how do they not keep protesting and holding those views? How do we invite them into some sort of relational community? 
sometimes you just have to say, sorry, you, you can't sit at this table because you keep trying to blow it up, right? Mm. Um, or you won't recognize the other people sitting at it. So, that, so you can't sit here because you're refusing to recognize them, though they're willing to recognize you. But that kind of necessary political exclusion should also cause us to be invested in practices of invitation that invite them back to the table, right? I mean, I'm, I've been really compelled by these um, different documentaries and different uh, things where they'll take, you know, a, a person who works as a border guard, say, and and put them in a family of uh, you know, undocumented uh, citizens, uh, undocumented uh, immigrants, immigrants, and <laughs> and it's fascinating because. Often they they then recognize, wow, I didn't understand this perspective. Mm-hmm. So my thought is, you know, we should take lessons from you know truth and reconciliation commissions in South Africa. We should take lessons from Mandela, who, if anybody had an axe to grind, that guy had one, and yet he showed grace and yeah. mercy and invitation, right? Um, or, or, you know, Martin Luther King continued to show hands of hospitality to the very people who were part of groups that would oppress him. But then he expected them to leave that group and come walk with him, right? So, yeah, I, 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 is there black and white? Only in cases where evil is so threatening that the nuance now risks being perceived as complacency or accommodation, hmm. right? If it, if it looks like we're accommodating evil, then, then we have to be more black and white about our disagreement, right? And as I say, like racism, no, that, that is an absolute mm. line that cannot be crossed. <clears throat> How do we invite, though, the person who may hold racist views to change their views? Mm. I don't think um, yelling is probably going yeah. to persuade them. Now, is it hard work? Yeah, and and sometimes it may just be futile. It may, it may not it may not go well. Sometimes there's there's got to be a point where you say, you know what, you're you're no longer participating in the conversation. Um, but but man, th- this is the, we should be really really hesitant to think we've got this all figured out. Um, mm-hmm. But yet at the same time. We have to stand with moral confidence. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's that and weird, right? It's that fine line of this is wrong, but obviously you have your view for a reason mm-hmm. and your perspective. Let me, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Let me understand. Yeah. Please well, tell me. You, I'll give you an example. And, and this is controversial. A lot of my colleagues think that I'm wrong in this. Um, I had a student once at a different university who had come uh, from a background, you know, I didn't know his history or his background, a white, white man, um, who young man who said some things in class that were, um, beyond the pale of, of racially appropriate language. Hmm. And I immediately said, look, that's not going to be okay here because it's creating a atmosphere again, where some at the table aren't able to participate. You, you can't do that here. But what I did is rather than saying, get out of my class, you're not welcome. I invited him to lunch and said, look, man, I want to try to understand where you're coming from. I said, no, look, you're not, you're, you're probably not going to persuade me. Like this is one of those deep convictions, Mm -hmm. right? You're not going to persuade me that I'm wrong about the importance of racial reconciliation and racial justice and racial equality. But I do think you're still a person of dignity. So Mm -hmm. how, how can I make sense of why you hold this repugnant view, man? I I don't get it. Interesting. And so we had lunch together. We started talking to each other and I just listened a lot. It turns out, you know, he had family history 
that was, you know, racialized in very problematic ways. He came from part of the country that had certain racist backgrounds and legacies that were, again, he, he's one of the kids basically whose parents were lifting yeah. the arm, right? And though I think he's blameworthy for holding that view, <laughs> it was problematic because it was a reasonable view in light of false premises, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So it, this this didn't make me more sympathetic to his view, but it made me want even more to find a way for him to feel like that I was taking him seriously and taking his voice seriously and not just saying, hey, you don't get to be here. So we talked. We got to know each other better. He eventually changed his view. Oh, really? And, and you know, ended up writing a thesis with me that explored cool. some of these ideas from different perspectives, right? And I thought, man, that's a win. And then the thing, though, and I always remind myself of this is, but he had to go home and now be in a family that saw him as the problem yeah. and the threat. And so what I was asking of him was such a high bar. Like, it wasn't just, dude, change your view. Like, just stop being a racist, man. It was... <laughs> Stop being a racist and maybe cut ties with your family. Like that that's a thing that gets lost sometimes. That's a good right? point because if you were to throw that at me. Yeah. Like because it's even though, yeah, we believe like those, you know, in um, air quotes, black and white or obvious right. truths. It literally would right be the same of asking you to change it because he held that so deeply this as well is such a deep view for him because it's yeah. part of his identity part of his history part of yeah. his family thankfully he changed his view which I, I think was morally good that he changed his view um but i think it's important when we talk to you know again, it doesn't have to be as as uh, you know quote unquote obvious as race i mean it could be um somebody who who you know i i identify as um pro-choice in in many ways yeah. and you know, if I'm talking to somebody who's pro-life, like it's it's important for me to be able to say, look, if if I give you the reasons that I hold this view, A, I guarantee you they're not going to be as simple as you think. <laughs> they're not going to be as obviously I don't care about things. No, it, I too believe in some theory of insolment. I too hold religious reasons, but I also hold different conceptions of how political argument works and what kind of reasons are available to us as citizens. And this is a hard issue. Right. And so if I'm trying to think that through with somebody, let's say that they adopted my view and they were yeah. persuaded. Good. But if they're from a ardently pro-life family, now they're at odds with their family in really complicated ways. And their family is likely to see them now as immorally uh, uh, occupied and immorally you know, stanced. And so <laughs> that doesn't mean that we stop standing for justice. It doesn't mean we stop standing for what we think is morally important. What it means, and nor, nor does it even mean that we, we water down or minimize or silence our voice. or No, what it means is that we unambiguously stand where we stand while finding constant ways to invite others to interrogate where they are as we continue to be open for interrogation. And only if we do that, I think, are we showing the hospitality that should define... Um, moral lives i love that all right so tell me so your ted talk the failure of success, failure of which, success. which i loved tedx talk you make, TEDx. make clear what, what i'm not <laughs> I, i'm not quite the uh the big deal for a ted talk yeah. <laughs> but just explain that to everyone just yeah explain your theory of why yeah. 
what is the failure of success? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it connects to everything else we've been talking about, mm-hmm. that our lives should be guided by a question of who am I trying to become? Um, who do I think I, I should be? Not simply what do I think I should do? Um, yes. And in particular, if we apply this to questions of jobs, um, I think it's really, really important that we say jobs matter. I mean, we spend lots of our time at them. Jobs matter, but they matter because people are units of dignity. And we work jobs in order to participate in relational engagements, right? Mm. We, we, I work my job so that I can provide for my family. I work my job so that I can be able to produce objects, books, lectures, talks, whatever, that I think are actually constructive in ways that invite others to live more meaningful lives. Mm-hmm. Whether it's making a widget or cutting hair or putting out fires, we work jobs because we're not alone. <laughs> it's a good mm-hmm. way to think about it. So let's focus on that not alone dimension yeah. rather than the job dimension. So we, we somehow make jobs egoistically framed. I work the job so I can get mine, so I can get money, so I can become rich, rather than saying, no, 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 building wealth is fine. Being financially savvy is important. Like th- These are all important things, and mm-hmm. I, I talk about them and, and, and think we should be smart about them. But at the end of the day, if our goal is to check boxes, to be successful, to have done some awesome thing, the problem is, you know, we might actually do it. And if we do it, what do we do the next day? Yep. <laughs> and so we forget our finitude. What does that mean? Uh, we forget that we are going to die <laughs> um, <laughs> when we think that life is about success achievement. <clears throat> because we think, well, if I get that Maserati, if I uh-huh. get that promotion, if I, you know, get that million dollars, whatever it is, then I will somehow be immortal. Like, no, you, you'll get it, and then you may need a kidney the next day, and yeah. it won't matter, right? So the, the, the thought in the failure of success is simply this sort of hopefully remem- you know, memorable way of saying if we seek success, we will be defined by failure because we'll either do what we set out to do and then the next day need to figure out something else to do because we can't <laughs> go forward, or we won't do what we set out to do and we'll always feel like we were never good enough. Boom. Can you repeat so, that again? Because yeah. we have a, achievers listening. You, you, yeah, and, and again, I'm an achiever. I'm a type A. I'm a, <laughs> you know, if yeah. we're going to do it, let's do it 100. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to do nothing but support achievers, <laughs> but I want to support achievers in an existential task. Mm to live lives of significance and meaning and fulfillment, not to live lives of accomplishment whereby they lose their souls, right? Not in a religious sense, but in mm-hmm. an existential sense. So there's only two options. We seek success. We seek to check that box, to get that mm-hmm. thing, to get that shiny you know, pot of gold. We either do it, in which case, I mean, think about it. like uh, there's movies like this, you know, where you you find the you know, Indiana Jones has a movie like this, where you <laughs> find the gold chamber and mm-hmm. all the wealth in the world. The thing is, you can't leave with any of it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so then it's like, well, do do you stay here and be rich by yourself, or or do you try to take the gold with you? In which case, then you bring the you know ceiling down on top of yourself. Like, if you get successful. Yeah, it's probably going to open up some neat things. You can go on better vacations and drive faster cars and mm-hmm. like okay. But the thing is if that was what drove you, what drives you the next day? 
and what we've done is created this culture of more, 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 do, 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 get that car, but then get the better one. Yeah. Right. I mean, very few people own one supercar, which is nuts. If you own <laughs> one Ferrari, mm -hmm. if you own one McLaren, why would you need nine more? Like, I mean, that's absolutely mind-blowingly weird to me. Hmm. And yet, the point is because a lot of people have one. Hmm, fewer people have two. I should have two. Well, fewer hmm. people have three. Like, it always is this competitive mode of saying, I'm important because I'm better than you. But again, you're not better than them relative to the human condition because you're both dying. So somehow we've got to figure out a way for success to be something that is good and fine and we do and we are achievers and we pull things off, but we're not defined by it. And I name that other way forward faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Rather than seeking success and being defined by failure, let's seek to be faithful to what we think matters. And if we do that, then we'll probably be successful because mm -hmm. we've got our priorities right. We have our habits correctly framed we are doing what it takes to be able to sacrifice in appropriate ways we're taking risks but in responsible ways right mm -hmm. and if we do that then we'll be successful probably but when we're successful now the success will not be who we are the success will simply be an aspect of our ability to continue to be ever more faithful mm. so example i give sometimes is when i was young you know, I, I wanted very discreet things. Yep. And I got those very discreet things. I was 24, had all of them. Yeah, it was uh, a, a, wolf, Toyota, a wolf, a Toyota <laughs> truck, and a wife. Like, I got all three by 24. Mm -hmm. And then I turned 25, and it was like, crap, I need something else. Like, ooh, I know, I'll get a PhD. I had a PhD by 28 or 29, I forget mm -hmm. what it was. And it was like, oh, shoot, okay, well, yeah. I'll write a book. Mm -hmm. Well, I wrote a book by 30, I think it was. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, so there were always, it had to be more, had to be more, had to be more. And all that does is leave you feeling like you're never good enough, you're never, you know, smart enough, you're never popular enough, you're never mm -hmm. rich enough. I mean, think about it. Like, the the sheer fact that the richest people in the world are continuing to try to make money. It, mm. I, I actually think there might be something immoral about this. <laughs> because there is no legitimate human need for more past where they find themselves and yet they're continuing to hustle to make it happen now you might say no it's about it's about just being the best and being good and being excellent and keeping us driving all good fine mm -hmm. why not do that then in ways that then their salaries are being actually filtered to the lowest income makers in their companies like why, why not link their salaries to the very bottom the people cleaning their toilets like find a way to then say you know what i got enough the point is not more the point is meaning mm. so i sometimes tell people that we should not just make money but we should make meaning and so if you're making meaning in your life it will probably be something that makes you money Ooh, because I you're good at being able to sell something that people need and want and makes their lives more compelling but the whole point of it is if it doesn't make me money it's still important <laughs> right mm -hmm. Making money is only important because of relational dynamics about human society. Making meaning is never only important in order to. It's the goal. It's the thing.
So let's be faithful to being good fathers, to being good mothers, to being good citizens, to being <clears throat> virtuous, to standing for justice, yeah. to <clears throat> um, creating a society that isn't defined by exclusion and marginalization and oppression and violence. And like, let's do that as the thing that drives us so mm -hmm. that we can say, what matters to me? That I become a person that I can virtuously show my children and show the next generation and say, you know what? Here. I, I, I lived this well, right? And this is why philosophers always talk about the goal being a life well lived. Hmm. Notice that's a process claim. <laughs> like you, you lived this well, not, oh, you had a McLaren. <laughs> like yeah. that's mind-blowingly silly for philosophers. Right? Yeah, and I think cool. it should be silly for humans, despite the fact if you got a McLaren, give me a call. Like I would love to go for a <laughs> ride in it. Yeah. <laughs> like so again, uh -huh. it's not that wealth is bad, or or using wealth to buy you know really or expensive car things is bad. Is bad. No, yeah. what's 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 dangerous is that you think you're good solely because you have that thing. That 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 is, I think, a very very unfortunate way to live in the world. Hmm. Yeah, I love how. And earlier in the interview, you, you said a rap line. So I have to, and I love, again, how you said make meaning. Yeah. Because there's a rap line, make the money, don't let the money make you. Right. Could we also replace make the meaning, but you could also let the meaning make you. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I think meaning making should make you. Yeah. Um, because it's, 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 again, it's a process. It's about saying, um, maybe we think about it this way. We, we so often understand the real world as this um, hard-nosed thing that we've got to get good enough to handle and navigate right we're gonna freaking win at this yeah <clears throat> you know hashtag boss hashtag keep it 100 like i, I mean I, I get it right i i, I yeah. follow the influencers that motivate yeah. people to keep on yeah. doing this i'm in i'm in that I, yeah I, I get it mm -hmm. um <laughs> the problem is that if we if we see ourselves that way, <clears throat> then we're, we're never inviting ourselves to recognize that vulnerability, brokenness, pain, mm. trauma, these are every bit as meaning-making in our lives mm. as the promotion and like the that. marriage and the you know degree from harvard or vanderbilt or whatever right so <clears throat> being able to say I, I posted on linkedin a few weeks ago that leaders are people who recognize that everyone on their team everyone under them everyone working with them shares the most essential thing with them that we are all part of the human condition so until we recognize that meaning making is this task for all of us, um, we will continue to think that there's something special about me, that I'm the one who's gonna do this and the rest of the people need yeah. to buy it. Like, man, nah, write, write the book that says stop reading my books. Like, that sounds weird. Oh yeah, what do you mean? Like, wh wh why is it that we think I'm the guru who's gonna be able to help everybody else figure out how to live? No, all I'm gonna do is mm -hmm. tell them how to live like me. That. That's not what they need to hear. Right? Live like you. Like, if, like if, live like themselves? Or? Well, no. I mean, to, if I'm saying, here's the uh -huh. book about how to do it. 
right? How to get rich in five easy steps. Well, yeah. all their, if everybody followed that, no one's getting rich because we all did the same thing and bought the same stock and it didn't work, right? Because we're going to blow the system up. Mm. The only way it works is if we find a way to say, you figure out what meaning looks like for you. Mm. You look like, you, you figure out what's important to you. And it probably is going to look different than me. So stop trying to be like me or I'm going to stop trying to be like that person. Let's all stop trying to be like Bill Gates or like LeBron James or whatever. And instead say, you know what? Like I couldn't care less about dunking a basketball. I think it's cool when LeBron does it, but it's not in my cards, right? So the goal is not to do what LeBron does. The goal is to be able to say, what is it about people that I admire what is it that they cultivate as virtues that I can cultivate in my own life, but specific to my situation, specific to my location? And so there, there just aren't seven easy steps for living a good life. It's just not how this works. There are as many steps as seconds and decisions as your life will eventually have, and you better step all of them, right? But we want steps. We want steps because we want someone else to get rid of the hard work of decision for us. Ooh. Right, we want to be able to pay twenty nine ninety five for the paperback and get it signed at the back of the auditorium, and be able to leave and think, done. Now all <laughs> I've got to do are these six things, and mm. I'm freaking finished. Well, or <laughs> you, you might ask yourself, well, wait a minute. If it's as easy as these six steps or these seven steps or whatever it is, and there's nothing wrong with a list. Like you know, I give lists sometimes at my talks about yeah. ways to remember things. But if we genuinely think like, ah, oh, now I've got it figured out. I mean, everyone probably would have figured this out already, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, do you think we should be thinking that we never have it figured out? Like, cause, yes. Because you say, seek things that Always you can keep seek. seeking, yeah, right? Yeah, you ain't got this figured out. It, it's a matter of saying, the more I live into who I'm trying to become, the better I am at being able to recognize that I still have work to do, you know, Socrates mm. tells us that he's the wisest man only because he recognizes his own ignorance. Yep. And one of the things I love about great leaders is great leaders are people who not only surround themselves with critics in order to be able to say, look, it's not about me, it's about truth, but it's great leaders are the people who are invested in developing the compassion of their followers. Mm. And what that means, I think, and this is this is taken from Paul Woodruff in a book called Reverence, what that means, I think, is when leaders are responsible for the compassion of their followers, they are invested in inviting their followers to become leaders. I love that. Yep. So y you should want yourself to be irrelevant in some really significant sense. But if you're the McC McLaren driver, you need everyone to look at you. Mm. What if the point was stop looking at me <laughs> and look at the person next to me who doesn't have a freaking car? Maybe we've got a social failure that needs our time, right? Dude, yeah, like I think about that and I'm still at the point, honestly, I'll be straight up, like in my life, I'm not seeking a McLaren, but I'm yeah. definitely still seeking significance yeah. for me, right? Like the yeah. point, like even though I'm listening to you and like I love learning and asking yeah. and like being proved wrong, yeah. really deep down, I love when a good yeah. review comes in. Yeah. I love when people message me and say, man, yeah. Aaron freaking, you blew my mind. Yeah. And I'm like, yes. I'm well, let me I, ask you, what, what do yeah. you mean by when you say you're seeking significance? What is significance in that sentence? 
like I want to be important. You like, want to be I like, important. Like my life of significance has per like my life has purpose. Yeah. But see, notice you're using all good words. <laughs> um, yeah. But then what I'm wondering is if those words just mean for you popularity, money, and status. Yeah. If they do, cool, own it, mm-hmm. right? Um, because again, there's nothing wrong with those being things that are at some level important for us. Because yeah, I mean, we are relational beings. It, we 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 want to be known and know, right? Popularity yeah. is at some level um, not evil. It, it's a a recognition of our relational identity as as the beings we are, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, it, Money is important so long as we live in a society whereby money makes possible certain types of activities that we find joy in in our lives, right? I'd love talking to a student today from Alaska. I'd love to go to Alaska. I'd love fishing, right? Yeah. Like, I would love to go. Like, mm-hmm. I can't afford to go to Alaska and like hang out and take float planes into salmon streams. Like, I would love to. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll get to go to Alaska. Maybe someday mm-hmm. I'll be able to do those sorts of things. But what's important is <laughs> recognizing that even if I don't, have I lived a life of which I'm proud, right? I like that. So it's not, it's not that we should somehow limit our desires relative to, you know, accomplishments. Like, no, go be accomplished. Go do this. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of being a Vanderbilt grad. I'm, I'm proud of, you know, publishing a bunch of books. Yeah. I love writing. And I, I, you know, but C.S. Lewis at one point says something really smart. He says, <laughs> being humble um, is not that you, you know, think less of yourself like oh i'm i'm not worth listening to oh i'm so no don't pay attention mm-hmm. it's that you think of yourself less because you got more to do you're you're I continuing like to make the world better you're continuing to act mm-hmm. and move forward because the point was never about look at me it was about here's something that needs done right and so i think it, uh, you know ultimately um when we talk about you wanting to seek significance, I actually think that's a good way to put it. Significance mm-hmm. and faithfulness, I think, are interchangeable mm. because you aren't going to be significant on a Thursday. Done. Well, because you'll be irrelevant on a Friday if that's how you look at it, right? I mean, in fact, talk to musicians, one-hit wonders. Were they significant? They were forgettable. Mm. I mean, like, the ability to be forgotten requires that you were at some point known. Ooh. So what that's not significance, right? That that's just yeah, you wrote a cool song. That that's cool. Like but the point is what have you done to make other people need to remember what you did? And I think the only way that we do that is if we stop thinking about what we do and think about who we are. I like that. So again, none of this is about you know, check out and you know, just go surfing all the time, which sounds cool. I wish I knew how to surf. But it's in or go fishing all the time. But it's about saying, how do we plug in to the reality of human relational existence that meaning is bigger than us, that truth is more important than simply monetary satisfaction. And at the end of the day, all of us, whether religious or not, or you know, again, this isn't about life after death. This is about at the end of your life when you look back you say you know what i i lived well you may not have lived rich hmm. but maybe you did the point is you also may live rich and live really really poorly I know a lot of rich people who are not living well 
even though they've got the McLaren and they've got the mansion and they've got the float plane to Alaska, <laughs> I wouldn't trade places with them in the world. Yeah, that's cool. So I have a segment in my show. It's called Scroll My Soul, <laughs> right? Which means essentially, I like I'll, so I write from conversations through podcast books. I kind of keep a list of thoughts or quotes or whatever. Yeah, I like it. Then I randomly scroll through and I stop. So it's kind of like a thought roulette. Then I ask okay. you to agree, disagree. So this is like the, the what was it, the... Uh, this day in God or the wheel of God or whatever it was on the old uh, daily show, <laughs> like spin the wheel. Oh, and, yeah. Something like that. All right. So I want, want to do a few with you. Okay. I'll, I'll keep short answers and I apologize to your audience. No, for, they're for, loving it. It, well, it. It's tricky. I, I, I told Ben earlier uh-huh. that we are not a society aggrained or uh, uh-huh. accustomed to nuance. Yeah. We're accustomed to twit that, you know, tweets being like, here's, here's all you need to know about this foreign policy. Uh-huh. And um, it really bugs me that uh, whether whatever your politics, it bugs me that Obama was considered an elitist because he actually elaborated and and discussed nuance. Hmm. So I think we've got to get better at that. Unfortunately, what that means, though, is that, um, yeah, I speak too long. So I apologize. No, don't, because like that's the whole thing, right? If we're talking about that's how we want to do things. Then let's do it. We got to. Right. So yeah, th- throw me some r- roulette you, of uh, wisdom. Here. <laughs> I like that. You might recognize this. So I'll give you a few. Okay. We love our churches instead of loving God. Hmm. Do you recognize that? I I, I think um, lots of people could have said that. <laughs> mm-hmm. It sounds like something I have probably written. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> it, uh, but I think this is true. Uh, back yeah. to our very first question. We love our churches, and we wear shirts that say, I love my church. Um, And we should recognize that the church is often the obstacle, the biggest obstacle to being able to let God show up in our lives, because God has to show up the way my church says God works. Um, I also think, by the way, the Bible can do that in weird, dangerous ways. Mm -hmm. So bibliolatry is where we love the Bible more than God. So our interpretation of what the scripture means is how God has to be mm-hmm. rather than praying the prayer with Meister Eckhart that I pray daily, God, rid me of God. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in other words, I pray that God strip away my thoughts of you so I might be open to who you reveal yourself to be Ugh. rather than needing to stay in the idol of my own conception of the divine. And I guess that kind of goes back to what you talked about earlier. Questions are not and disturbing. Not there, that's right. Yeah, Oof. yeah. So, I like that. Yeah, it, it, that 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 quote <laughs> would have sounded smarter if someone else had said it. But 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 I I, I do think it's true. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's one awesome. I can stand by. Um, you'll recognize this one too. Let's walk together and talk along the way. Yeah, it's that, the way that matters, not just where we end up. Oh, it's such a that that I think is such a smart point, um, and it's not because it's it's a point I have made. It's it's because I think it's true. Again, it's not about what I say; it's about what needs said. Um, it's not about that I hold the view; it's that the view is worthy of being held, right? Mm. But no, this this um, real quick story. Come, let's walk together and talk along the way. Was actually something that my wife and I said to each other in our wedding. Love it. It was part of how we ended our vows to each other. And the whole idea was, again, to get away from marriage being that box check, right? On a Wednesday, I wasn't married. Wednesday night, I was. Woo, done, married. <laughs> like, nope. Yeah. Now I've got to get up on Thursday and, and 
continue to be married and get up on mm-hmm. Friday and get up 20 years later and continue to be married. And notice the emphasis is the be, like living into it. Yeah, not so, just married, check. It don't work that way. It, it's mm-hmm. every day. So again, what am I trying to do? Not check the box of success, marriage, got the wife, that's how I looked at it when I was 20. But instead, now I'm trying to be faithful to being a good husband and continue to strive for what can't be achieved, but continues to call me ever further forward. And the way matters, you know, like, and the conversation matters. Who you walk with matters. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, like I've I've walked through some sketchy places, (laughs) but been in a conversation and and it didn't matter. Like it didn't care. Like I'm, because this conversation wins, right? I've I've been in conversation Mm -hmm. with people before where we would be chatting and it would get dark and we'd be sitting in pitch dark and not get up to turn the light on because we were engrossed in the conversation, right? I mean, that's not like the biggest nerd ever, but tonight when we get done with this, I'm going to go home and get my wife and son and we're going to go get dinner or something. And the ability to walk with her one more day and talk with my son, um, like that wins, man. Like, you know, hopefully I've got enough money in the bank to send him to college. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, I'll work harder and find a way to make these things work, right? So again, mm-hmm. like it, it's I'm very privileged, and I know a lot of people would would do anything to be in the position that I'm in. Whereas, you know, I and we feel like, oh, if only I could get to where that person is. Mm-hmm. But if we're, you know, come let's let's walk together and talk along the way, like then we get at the heart of what existence looks like. Dude, I love that. How into the stuff is your wife? Uh, yeah, not, (laughs) um, we, we, we discovered early on that we would walk better if we did not talk (laughs) philosophy along the way. Um, and I think this actually is probably a a silly question, but it has a really important aspect to it. Mm -hmm. We have to be aware that Mm -hmm. other people can be every bit as good, if not better, smart, if not smarter, um, and fundamentally have different orientations and priorities and interests and skill sets, right? And yeah. one of the things I think it's really dangerous, especially in kind of the LinkedIn verse that a lot of us live in, yeah. is we tend to think that there are these like five things that are the things that we've got to care about and got to prioritize. And it's like, well, you know, in certain industries, maybe, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, my wife, she's a marketing director for Chick fil A. She's That's great cool. at it, she loves her job, she mm-hmm. loves what she does. I, I cannot imagine anything more soul crushing <laughs> than dealing with disgruntled people who uh-huh. got, you know, the wrong order. Like, mm-hmm. no, she can't think of anything more, I don't say useless, uh, <laughs> but, but more exhausting uh-huh. than spending five, six, seven hours a day reading and then maybe being able to talk to somebody about what I've read and then to spend... <laughs> a year or two writing a book about the books I've read. Like she just, that makes her tired. Yeah. Right. And yet for me thinking about doing a toddler time with 35, you know, one year olds making biscuits like they did this week at her Chick-fil-A. Like, Oh goodness. Like I'd write a dissertation any day (laughs) rather than that. Right. So yeah, it's, she doesn't like what I, I mean, she loves that. I love what I do that's important. Um, and I love that she loves what she does. And and so, you know, for me, like, I think we're living significant lives in our case because we, you know, 
it's not that, you know, the whole, that, I think it's a lie that if you love what you do, you'll never work. No, you'll still work most days. <laughs> like it, this is not how it works, right? It, it'll be exhausting and it'll be hard. And most days you want to get out of bed. And I'm just kind of saying like, I love working out and, and being at the gym. Mm -hmm. Do you think I love getting up at five to do it? No, yeah. like every day I don't want to go. And yet you get out of bed because you recognize this is facilitating the life that you're trying to live. And so my wife and I, I think we do our best and we fail most days, but we do our best to live a life that invites our son to be somebody that, you know, we would want him to be. And we do our best to love each other in ways that each other need to be loved. And some days we don't do it very well and we get mad at each other and mm -hmm. we get out of bed the next day and try again. But we recognize that sometimes when you're walking together, you know, one person may not be able to navigate the cliff as well as the other person navigates the stream mm -hmm. and so thankfully we're walking together and help each other yeah, you know, i love that get across the, not the, where the you end up but it's the way i love that way. that's right so i know you don't like lists and we're, we're close to wrapping up here but this is just all great and i love philosophy <laughs> your your son yeah you have he's 10 he's 10 atticus yeah atticus my dude what's up if you're listening in eight years. <laughs> um, you have just one thing, like one sentence or kind of two sentences you could sum up. And I know there's, I know yeah. we've already established there's just not that one thing. There's nuance. Right, right. there's nuance. But if you had to. Yeah, but you also got to know your audience. What would you and tell I, and I, Well, yeah, it's a good question. And I admit um, <laughs> your audience perplexes me. I've watched some of your, your podcasts mm -hmm. and you do go deeper and you do ask yeah. deeper questions and you do probe into personal issues and stuff, which is why I've been willing to mm -hmm. do some of that. Most podcasts <laughs> I do, you know, they're either like yeah. to an academic audience. Yeah. And so we're, you know, logic chopping and talking about Kierkegaardian mm -hmm. ontology and conceptions of soteriological theism, <laughs> right? Like, that's but, cool too. Yeah, I mean, but that's a different audience. Yep. And then other audiences that I speak to a lot are business leaders and mm -hmm. innovation leaders. And how do we cultivate, you know, communities that are thriving? And so when I speak to that, like I kind of leave the philosophy at home and mm -hmm. let it be the background by which I then am thinking with them about, all right, what are we trying to do? Who are yeah. we trying to become? What, what problems are we facing in our company? How do we get mm -hmm. there? <clears throat> this is sort of a weird hybrid, right? And so it's, it's been it a is. lot of fun. Um, these, are, these are just like how I like to... I mean, we call each other like growth junkies. Yeah, I, I saw that. I think yeah. that's a cool, cool way to put it. Um, mm -hmm. But what I tell my son, mm -hmm. I, I'll put it this way. We actually have a little mantra that we sometimes um, say with each other. And, and I think it summarizes everything I want for him. Mm. Um, so sometimes when I'm driving him to school, I'll say, Atticus. And he always, of course, you know, responds the right way, but he <laughs> responds like, uh, you know. <laughs> so I'll say, Atticus, who loves you? more than anything and he'll say you know mom and you do and i'll say what do i care most about for you and he'll say that i'm kind <laughs> and i'll say what do i not care about for you that i'm rich mm. i'll take that that's cool and you do ask I, him those questions yeah do i hope that he is you know well off and financially stable of course i'm gonna try to train him that way and i'm gonna try to you know have money that i can leave him and give him a leg up and teach him responsibilities and teach him the amazing tax benefit of roth iras like <laughs> all of this yeah. is also true in fact he you know I've, I've been sitting with him working you know talking to about investing and showing him how really? compound interest works dude i love that we're doing that at 10. i love that but the whole point is i figure if he kind of knows how to do some of that it doesn't have to define him. It's just kind of part of what he does and how he goes about the world. 
but I don't care if he's an artist or a musician or a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I care that he's kind, mm. and I care that he loves his neighbor as himself, and I care that he does his best um, not to miss God or, you know, in his attempt to be perceived as righteous. Mm. So, yeah, you know, who love loves that. you? You do. What do I want that I be kind? What do I not care about that I'm rich? For me, those mm. are the three questions that matter most in his life. I love that. Aaron, well, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Thanks for philosophizing. Did I say that word? Yeah. Did that's I say a, that right? That's, a, that's, that's right one, <laughs> philosophizing. That's right. <laughs> like, do you have, of course, name, I mean, in the description, there'll be a link to your LinkedIn, mm -hmm. but do you have anything else on your heart or your mind just that you're feeling in the moment that you want to touch on? I mean, I, I guess I'd say thank you for what you're doing, for, mm -hmm. for the kind of depth that you're trying to cultivate, yeah. um, especially in a, a space that is not, um, what, not well suited for depth. <laughs> um, yeah. LinkedIn is a weird space and, mm -hmm. and it's been interesting to me. I, I follow a lot of people who have, you know, a million followers or whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll watch the stuff they post and I think, man, like, maybe they have more people paying attention because everything they say is trivial. <laughs> like, yeah. Maybe that's what people want is something super fast and super easy and super, you know, yeah. and again, that's not, not taking anything away from it. Some of them also were brilliant and smart yeah. and they know their audience. And they know how to market. Like, yeah. I, I get a lot that I'm trying to learn from them. Right. Mm -hmm. But then I think, well, why is it that philosophers have a tendency to get themselves killed? <laughs> right. Like we, we don't win elections. Well, and I think there's something important about trying to close that gap. And I think that the kind of work you're doing and, and the mm. growth for which you are a junkie might be the kind of thing that genuinely can be contagious. Thanks, um, man. And so I, I, I think it's a socially necessary type of work. But I'll encourage you with, and again, I've, I've quoted C.S. Lewis a bunch, which people will... Uh, think whatever they will about me but <laughs> i'm teaching a seminar right now on c.s lewis okay, and i'm okay. reading a bunch of him lately <laughs> but lewis um he said that when he was looking around for what to do with his life uh, you know he, he you know looked around and metaphorically saw where everybody else was getting in line and then he tried to figure out well mm. where is no one lining up Ooh. that's probably where work needs done and i think real innovators and real leaders ask that same question they say what is everybody else missing you know, what, what, what is needed, but no one's willing to do. And, um, you know, the leader that will say, you know what, the bathrooms need cleaned. So I'll go clean them. It's not like, oh, I should find somebody who's able like, no, you, you step up and do it. So producing content that is personal, vulnerable, depth, heavy, nuance, invitational mm -hmm. for a LinkedIn space, for mm -hmm. a podcast space yeah. that often wants, you know, 29 minutes so they can do it well on their 30 minute treadmill routine and we want that list they want the list man and and again sometimes you give them the list right mm -hmm. my students want notes for their test yeah. i give them notes for their test like, mm -hmm. so it's not at all please don't hear me as saying that's Ooh, bad suck. or vicious <laughs> no none of that is bad it's just to say you know maybe we should be better at going where no one else is lining up and, and I like that I, a lot. I think that maybe what you're trying to do right now is is seems to me a little bit of that. And so I encourage you with that. I hope, hope you keep it up, man. Thanks, man. And I'm definitely, hopefully I can consider you 
someone who's in my circle of critics loving it's a good way to put it my circle of loving critics back at you Uh, I, i tell people sometimes that um getting a phd just means that you are probably now more blind to when you're wrong it, it rarely means that you are uh, better at being right. So, um, yeah, no, I, I that, that's a mutual mutual thing. I, I think um, we, we live right now in a, a culture. It's kind of a mentor culture, right? Where everybody's like yeah. trying to find a mentor, try to find a mentor, or yeah. find yourself with mentors. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's good. It's an Aristotelian idea. You find exemplars and you try to live like them. I think it's fine. Um, but I think one of the dangers about that, again, is it's kind of – you know, we we abdicate the responsibility of becoming onto the shoulders of someone else because we think they've already, you know, are. They're becoming just like we are. Like we're all always becoming. And so, yes, find mentors. Yes, find examples. Yes, find uh, people you want to emulate. But at the same time, find Aristotelian friends. And what I mean by that is Aristotle says you can never be friends with someone who's not as good as you are. And what that means is not be elite and find the excellent. It means you've got to surround yourself with people that you think genuinely can challenge you. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you are, again, invested in excellence, not simply invested in your own narrative. And so, you know, yeah, I, Dude, I, I, love this. I admit, like, I wish I had more likes and views on my TEDx talk. And, <laughs> you know, I look at other people's who have 25,000 or 100,000. I'm like, man, like, I can't crack 2,500. Yeah. I admit, like, these are not immoral things to mm-hmm. think, man. So, yeah, I want you to get likes. But I then remind myself, yeah, but wait a minute. Um, whether or not anybody else watches my TED talk, my son watches me every day. Ooh. And so that's probably where I need to spend my time focusing on things. Boom. Well, mic drop right there, dude. That was awesome. Hey, thank you so much. It's been <laughs> thank great. You, my man. Anyone who has made it through this ridiculously long <laughs> podcast, again, my apologies. No. If there's anything You're I can welcome. do for any of your listeners, they can reach out to me. They can email me. Uh, I'm happy to do whatever I can to be a resource to, to anybody. We're, we're all in this together. Yeah. So what's your email? My email is Aaron, A A R O N dot Simmons, S I M M O N S, at Furman. Edu. Furman is F U R M A N. Yeah. Reaching out, speaking engagements. Mm-hmm. Aaron's your dude. Yeah. If, like I said, I do business consulting, uh, leadership speaking, public speaking, mm-hmm. keynoting, um, community events. You know, I've, I've been doing a lot of work recently with public schools and private high schools mm-hmm. and uh, moral education and how we can think about that as 11th graders and all kinds of interesting mm-hmm. things. So um, I, I'm convinced that philosophy means business. And so uh, businesses should do a better job of recognizing they need philosophy. Hmm. All right, dude. Thank you all. Adios. Thank you, guys. Yo, guys, how dope was that convo? That was really, honestly, one of my favorite conversations because of the depth we went into. Not just simple answers, didn't just give you a list. Aaron gave you nuance, and that's what life's about. So I appreciate him doing that. And if you appreciate Aaron, please go leave a review on iTunes about this podcast, The Goaling Show. So press pause. Please leave a review. It really does help the show get to more ears, get to more eyeballs, and it helps them get the knowledge that you've received, the love that you've received, whatever that may be. So please go leave a review. That would really be incredibly meaningful. So thank you so much in advance. And remember, join the membership. Um, The link is in the description if you want to have conversations like these weekly with an amazing community offline, off, well, it is technically still online, it's on the internet, but off social media. And our first conversation is about 
exploring the unknown, trusting the unknown, and why we fear uncertainty. Why do we fear the unknown? And I'm going to teach and have a conversation about this topic. And we have conversations coming up about um, your money mindset, your abundance mindset, um, creating that in your life, about how to love through pain and heartbreak. We really do have quite an array of topics coming up that I'm excited to delve in with this group. Um, So really, like, you will love it. So go check out the description and sign up. I'm excited to see you guys there. And this week's challenge is inspired by Dr. Simmons. This is probably one of the most important challenges we've done. Seek out a conversation with someone who disagrees with you. Yes, right? This is our challenge for this week, and it will definitely be a challenge for most of us. And this is not an attempt to convince them to change their viewpoint or argue with them. Come into the conversation with an open mind and and ask them to share why they believe what they believe. Ask questions. Don't spit out supposed or actual facts to counter their point. Listen to the reason or why, the why behind their beliefs. What was their upbringing like? What has shaped their view? Once you ask questions and listen, you'll probably understand why they think the way they do. And after this, you may of course share your opinion if it's appropriate. And who knows, you could change someone's mind like Aaron has by first listening and asking questions and then offering your point of view. So your challenge is to seek out a conversation with someone who disagrees with you and approach it in a loving, um, heart-centered way. All right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed this pop, uh, this podcast episode. I love you truly, truly, truly. So much love to you if you're listening. Truly, truly, I love you. Remember, if it's anyone, it's you. If it's any time, it's now. My name is Ben. Have an amazing week.